0: The reading today is taken from Malachi 1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we, off- how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or deceased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable meal in his flock and who vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations.
1: Good morning. Good to see you again. Um, if you didn't know, my family and I, we were away, we've been away for three weeks um, in Australia. So it's good to be back home and in our, with our church family again. Uh, it's good to see you all. We are uh, severely jet-lagged still. We got back on Friday morning, so I think it must be about like 8, 9pm for us at the moment in our body clock. But It's lovely to be here. Uh, it's good to be back. We are looking at a series in the book of Malachi. Uh, we are doing a four-part series in this book. Uh, It's got four chapters, and so I'll just put up the headers here, and we're going with this big theme of wholehearted worship. That's where we're going. And I don't know if you remember, uh, a few weeks ago, so Mike preached us through the vision and values of Grace Church. And I don't know if you remember what he said. It was all the point of the whole thing. Well, there was one talk and there was a, it was a picture of a triangle and there were the pinnacle of the triangle and the, all of the rest of the stuff we do as a church and in life ends with this one thing. Do you remember what it was? Uh, it's worship. Everything is about worship. Ultimately uh, the whole point of the Bible, the whole point of the gospel, the whole point is that God would be worshipped and we'd be worshipers. That's what God's passionate about and so we're looking at a four- Week uh, series on Malachi. So here's where we're going in the series. We've got the, today, let today talk about love. Now, all these, it's not mustering up our own love or faithfulness. It's what God gives to us to make us wholehearted worshippers love, faithfulness, treasure, and hope. So that's where we're going in the coming weeks. Why Malachi? It's a challenging book, isn't it? You just read that chapter. It's a challenging chapter, it exposes half heartedness. God uh, starts digging at the roots in this chapter and starts exposing hearts and it reminds us of what God's passion is and it points us to a saviour and it exposes external religion. So Malachi is a great book for us to search our hearts and see God's passion for us to be worshippers and here's the hope that it would purify our worship, it would strengthen our love for God, it would renew us in our passion for God, and that we would be wholehearted worshippers. So that's where we're going. That's the desire. How does this happen? God has to change our hearts. It says in chapter 4, verse 6, I will turn their hearts. God's going to change our hearts. And this is the exciting thing. God's passionate. God is passionate about you being a worshipper. He is in the business of making us into worshippers, making his people into wholehearted worshippers. And uh, you remember uh, a few weeks ago that message that Mike gave, he referred to Jesus' words in John chapter 4 where Jesus said, The Father seeks worshippers who worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is pursuing worshippers and he's committed to making us worshippers. This is what we're made for. And maybe you're not a believer in here today in Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, and you think, well, I'm not religious. You know, we're all religious. We all worship something. All of us are worshippers. Uh, Bill Shankley, who used to manage the Liverpool Football Club, he famously is quoted as saying this. He said, some people think football is a matter of life and death. I assure you, it's much more serious than that. <laughs> wow. He's, worship- he's a worshipper of football what do you worship? We all worship something. Worship isn't, you uh, know, in, in Christian circles, sometimes worship is equated with singing, you know. It's not about that, is it? Worship is, as we sung before, it's, uh, what did we say? We said to bring our lives as a daily offering. Worship is our whole lives, it's exalting and magnifying God. What we worship, we exalt and we serve and we magnify. The worship of the true God is a life and death matter. Either we worship the living God, or we worship his creation. So either we worship the living God, or we worship idols. An idol is anything in creation that we worship. Not necessarily a statue that we bow down to. It might be uh, something that we, uh, bring, is on the pedestal of our hearts. What is on the pedestal, on the throne of your heart? What do you live for? What do you ultimately delight in? What do you ultimately serve? What do you ultimately worship? The exciting thing about worshipping God, it's what we're created for. It's the most eternally satisfying thing. So today we're going to talk about what love has to do with wholehearted worship. And here's the big idea. Let's put it up on the screen here. We worship God wholeheartedly when we grasp and magnify His boundless love for us in Christ. We worship God wholeheartedly when we grasp and magnify His gracious love for us in Christ. Or to put it in the opposite, in the negative, we could say this. Grasping God's love, His electing love, His specific, special love that He had for us before eternity passed, grasping that love for us in Christ is the cure for empty worship. That's what we need to do. We need to grasp that. Now, this was the problem in Malachi's day. So God's people, Israel, didn't love God. They had no heart for him. We read that chapter just before, chapter 1, and we see that God's people don't love him. They don't know him. And they're disillusioned by their circumstances. They're worldly. And so there is a difference between us and them in that we are God's church, God's people who've been born again. Um, God's spirit lives in us. And so we know God. Now, the difference between us and them here, we can't just apply it directly because a lot of the people of Israel didn't know God. So here they are, uh, God's chosen people, but they don't love him and they don't know him. What's the setting? We know that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you turn over two pages, you'll see that we're in Matthew. So it's the last book of the Old Testament. It's about 450 BC. And Malachi is the last prophet that God has sent to the people of Israel. And here he is, uh, given this message, Malachi means my messenger, and God sends Malachi to God's people to speak God's word to them because they've been half-hearted. Now they've been back in the land of Israel after the exile to Babylon for about 70 years, 50 to 70 years. We're not exactly sure of the date, roughly then. The problem is that God's people have become disillusioned. God made all these amazing promises Uh, that one day he would bring them back out of exile again into the land of Israel and that it would be a glorious return. So if you look at, for example, Jeremiah 31, uh, you see there God's promises of this amazing picture of young and old, this great throng uh, coming back into the land of Israel and there'll be grain and there'll be new wine and there'll be parties and there'll be conga lines and fruit salad and everything exciting. And it's a picture of paradise, Was that how Israel experienced it? Yes, they came back from exile, but what was their experience? Their experience was a really small temple compared to the one it used to be. They were poor. Um, They were oppressed by enemies. They were under the thumb of the Persian Empire. So they're struggling people, and so they're disillusioned. And they're wondering, (laughs) I wonder if you've ever asked this, I wonder if you've ever asked this question, what's the point of serving God? When I look around at other people around me uh, and I see that they're doing pretty well, what's the point? Have a look at chapter 3, verse 14 to 15. You just get a picture of what their attitude is like. Chapter 3, verse 14 to 15. You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. But now we call the arrogant, blessed, certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So what's the point of serving God, they're asking? And so what's the result? That's their attitude in their hearts, and it results in this empty worship. They're going through the motions. They've become cynical. I wonder if you have become cynical about anything. I remember this attitude I had when I was doing this um, farm work. After I finished high school, I, I did this um, farm work in the baking uh, Queensland sun, and we, just in, in cotton chipping. So you're walking up and down these rows of cotton and, with a hoe, and you're just chipping out weeds, and you're doing that all day in the baking sun. And the thing you long for is the end of the row where you can have a drink of water, not cold water, warm water in the sun. It's a horrible, monotonous job. And I remember every day thinking, here we go again. That attitude of, here we go again. I wonder if you can relate that to anything in your life. Maybe your work. Uh, Maybe government. Here we go again. Another leader we're not impressed with. Um, Maybe you're cynical about the future. Maybe you're cynical about your marriage. We can be cynical about all kinds of things, but what about cynicism in your relationship with God? Can you relate to that at all? Maybe you started off excited as a Christian. Maybe you were really keen to read the Bible and to pray and to engage with Christians. Maybe that's changed. Maybe you don't feel that anymore. Maybe you uh, started off uh, serving, you served with energy, but you feel like this is thankless, not getting sort of appreciated for it. What's the point? Or maybe you've given up sharing your faith. You used to be really zealous and you haven't seen many people come to Christ. And so you feel maybe, what's the point of sharing my faith? Maybe you have given up praying because you don't see results, you don't see answers. God doesn't seem to answer my prayer. And so maybe worship for you is associated with guilt or failure. You feel like you're caught in a vicious cycle. You want to worship more, but then you feel inadequate or you feel like you're half-hearted and so you feel condemned by God and that makes you even feel more distant to Him. Maybe you can relate to those things. What do we need? good news for you today is that God is committed to making you a wholehearted worshipper. If you come into a relationship with Christ, then God is committed. And if you don't know Jesus yet, then you, can have, you have this opportunity and he is, he is prepared to make you into a wholehearted worshipper. But we can't do it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. I, I wonder if you've seen that movie uh, by, with Matt Damon, Martian. And um, uh, Matt Damon is stuck on Mars and his crew has left him, they think he's dead, and he's stuck on Mars, and he gets a piece of metal lodged in his stomach, and there's this distressing scene where Matt Damon has to put himself under an operation. He gives himself uh, anesthetic, and he operates on himself to remove this thing. Now, that's all well and good maybe, be, possible, uh, with something in your stomach, but none of us can imagine. It's impossible to do a heart transplant on yourself, isn't it? None of us could ever do that. What we need to do is submit to the surgeon's scalpel. And we need, to go, we need to let God do a heart change on us. That's the only way is to go to the Lord and receive his solution, his treatment of us. And so here's the three parts of this today, the outline. And they are, one, God's passion, two, our problem, and three, God's prescription. So there we are, that's where we're headed today. Let's look at the first one, God's passion. God's passion is for the pure, undefiled worship of his people. That's what he seeks. And so we see this in a number of places in chapter 1. Have a look at verse 11. You see this, verses 11 and 12, really clearly. Well, just verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. God's passionate about his worship the worship of his name in all the nations. You might know that picture in Revelation five um, where all nations of people are worshiping around the throne of God and giving him. Glory from every tribe. God's passionate about his name being glorified and worshipped in the nations. And then have a look at the second half of verse 14. And he says the same thing right at the end of the chapter. My name is to be feared among the nations, held in highest honour, revered. And so multiple times in this chapter you get God talking about my name, my honour, my fear. Why is God so passionate about the worship of his name? Maybe you're a bit sceptical and you feel like this is a, this is a petty thing about God. This is, isn't this petty that God would seek worship, that he would be hungry for worship? Isn't it vain? Um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who plays for Manchester United, has had a, cha- a statue, I think it's about nine foot high, made of himself uh, in Sweden, outside a stadium. Uh, you know, he's a great Swedish footballer. And... You know, no one really knows whether Zlatan's taking himself seriously or just having a joke. Maybe he's just having a joke. But this is what he said. He said, I wanted the statue to be like me. Massive, powerful, magic, wow! This is Zlatan. Now, maybe he doesn't mean it. Uh, But either way, we can't take it seriously because we know that really nobody deserves that. Now, what's the difference with God? Two main differences with God. One is he deserves worship. And two, we need it. That's the reasons why he's to be worshipped. One, he deserves it. And two, we need it. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need it, but we need it. It's for our sake uh, that we're to be worshippers. So let's look at those. First, he deserves it. God is infinitely glorious. He's the creator. So in Revelation 4, all these... uh, People are worshiping around the throne and saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. So all life comes from God. All beauty comes from Him. All meaning comes from Him. He deserves all the glory. And you can look at verse 6 and you see the kind of king that He is. He's not just a great, powerful king, but He's a father. And he's a good master. And he's a great king. So it's not just that he's powerful that he deserves worship, but he's good. He's loving. He's gracious. He's kind. And so he deserves worship for who he is. He also deserves worship for what he's done. Have a look at verses 2 to 4. He's loved his people. He's lavished incredible love on his people. Have a look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord... But you ask, how have you loved us? So the people of Israel can't see that God loves them. They don't really get it. But God has lavished love on them. He's chosen them. It says in, back in Jeremiah 31, again, it says, I have loved you, speaking to Israel, God's people, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And In Deuteronomy 7, he said, I've chosen you as my treasured possession. This is God's love for his people, Israel. And have a look at verses 2 to 4 here. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. You ask, how have you loved us? Was not, God's reply, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I hated, and I turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build... But I will demolish. They will be called a wicked land. A people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes. and You'll say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. What's going on here? So God has chosen the people Israel. If you know the story, way back in Genesis, uh, Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of God's people. And he had a son, Isaac, who inherited that promise And then Isaac had two sons. Who were they? Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau was the oldest, but he didn't get the promise. The promise went to the younger son, Jacob, who was called Israel. So Esau, the nation that came from the people of Esau, is this people here, Edom or Esau. But God chose the nation of Israel to be his people, and he rejected the nation of Esau. So he's lavished his love on Jacob, but he's rejected the nation of Israel. And this word, hate, is strong language, isn't it? It's a kind of selective kind of choosing. Now, if you think about, uh, Jesus used a similar kind of term when he said this. He said, anyone who comes after me, follows me, and does not hate his wife, or his father, his mother, or even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, we know the Bible says husbands love your wives. We're talking about a kind of selective preference here. God's electing love for Israel and his not choosing of Esau and his descendants. Now, you might say, that's unfair. But here's the thing. Esau got what they deserve. Everybody deserves God's wrath. You, me, all nations of the world deserve God's wrath. If there's any unfairness, God says, uh, sorry, I Sproul in a talk once. He talks about God's grace being kind of a non-justice. It's, it's not that it's unjust, but it goes beyond justice. God chooses to save some. He chooses to save his people, Israel. He chooses to save us. I wonder how you feel about that god's electing love but you know what israel should be amazed what should their response be you know we deserve god's wrath we deserve to be condemned we deserve nothing but judgment we deserve the same thing that esau gets A people always under the wrath of the lord but what do they get they get his electing love what kind of response is appropriate for that i can't believe god chose me amazing love thankfulness and humility and praise to god amazement so god deserves praise because he's worthy of it he's loved us second one he deserves praise because the world needs it he deserves praise because we need it we need god more than anything else and actually he's passionate about being worshipped his people worshipping him because his glory is reflected in the world through his people God's passionate about you and I being worshippers so that the world sees how great a God he is. I was once a, a science teacher and I uh, remember this experiment that we were doing optics, you know, basic sort of reflection and lenses and stuff. And we were looking at mirrors, that lesson. And I sent the kids outside and I said, well, what I want you to do? I gave them about nine mirrors, I can't remember. And I said, "Send them outside and I said, what you've got to do is you've got to get the light of the sun the bright afternoon sun, and I'll stand here behind the front, you know, at the front of the classroom behind the desk and you've got to somehow get it into my eyes and blind me with the light of the sun. So they went outside and you know, five minutes later, there was you know, a couple of kids in front of me holding a mirror and eventually they got me right in the eyes with the light of the sun. They took it from outside and around the building and down the corridor and into me. Now, we're to be like that ...in the world as God's people... ...to take God's glory and to reflect it in the world... ...or we're to magnify God... ...John Piper talks about the kind of magnifying... ...that we're to, to, uh, to have in the world... ...is not like a, a microscope magnifying... ...which is to take something tiny and to make it look bigger... ...it's kind of a telescope magnifying... ...where we take something enormous... ...and bring it into real perspective... ...like when you see Saturn... ...and how huge it is and amazing through a telescope... ...you think, wow, I didn't realise... You know, our mission is to be to show the world how glorious God is, to magnify him. So the world needs to see it. So God's passionate about his people being worshippers because of his glory in the nations. Okay, our problem. Second point. What's our problem? Well, God's people in Malachi are doing the very opposite. The problem is they're not magnifying God. They're, making him, they're diminishing him. They're making him look smaller. They're actually making him look pathetic in the world. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. We see here that serving God isn't a privilege to them. It's drudgery. Verse 12. You profane my name by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord, Almighty. There's three images in there. Burden, that God is a weight to them. He's like a slave master to them. He feels like a slave master. And The next uh, image, he says, you profane my name. We use the word profanity to talk about a curse word. If someone utters a profanity. God is a curse to them. So he's a slave master and a curse and a sniffing at it contemptuously. He's like a bad smell to them. Now, if something stinks in the house, you locate it and you get rid of it. whether it's rotten food or sporting gear or whatever, you deal with it. They hate God, don't they? They have no love for him. They just want to get rid of him. They just want him out. The problem is, not that God stinks, but their hearts stink. Their hearts are full of contempt for the beautiful, almighty God. And five times this chapter, you, you see this word contempt come up. You have contempt for my name. They show this by their actions. What were they actually doing? They were bringing crippled animals for sacrifice. They were basically, you know, the, the law in the Old Testament prescribed an unblemished blemished animal, whether it be a goat or a ram, whatever the appropriate animal for the sacrifice was, they were to bring one without defect. But here they are bringing the, um, the bargain basement animals. They're just getting the cheap animals, whatever that can save them money and just get it done, and they're dishonouring God this way. And you see in verses 6 to 8, the priests are okay with this. They're not, they're not stopping it. They're not saying, sorry, I'm, we're not sacrificing this animal. They're okay with it. Now, God's passionate about those sacrifices being pure. Why? A huge reason is because he's passionate about his son. And the scriptures point to his son, the perfect sacrifice... And he's passionate about these sacrifices, pointing to a perfect sacrifice needed to take away sin. But here they are dishonouring his name by bringing rubbish sacrifices. Half-hearted rubbish, just going through the motions. What's God's response? He doesn't accept it. He's not pleased. He's not okay with it. Have a look at verse 8b. He gives this example, gives this picture. He says, Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Imagine you're standing, uh, the queen, Her Majesty the Queen is coming past and you're one of those people at the front of the crowd and people give her flowers and you hand her a bunch of you know, rotten weeds or something like this. Now, better off not handing her anything at all, obviously. Have a look at verse 10. He says the same thing. Oh, that one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you. Better off that the nations don't see you doing anything at all rather than bringing rubbish, bringing empty sacrifices. They're dishonouring God's name. Men, we understand this. If you've proposed to your wife, if you're, or if you have a fiancé or a wife, you understand this. The, thing that you, the gift that you give says something about the one who receives it. I'll say that again. It's important. The gift that you give... The thing that you offer says something about the one who receives it. Now, what is the function of an engagement ring? What's the point of an engagement ring? It really does nothing, does it? It doesn't accomplish anything. What's the point of it? But it actually has a really important function. What is it? It's to convey the value of your bride. Now, if you went and spent uh, 50 pounds on a cheap ring from the charity store and then spent a couple hundred pounds on a season ticket, Uh, to a football team, you convey something about the value of your bride. Now here they're conveying something about the value of God, they're conveying the idea that he's rubbish. So God is saying to them, look what I've done for you, look how much I've loved you, look how much I've valued you, look how much I've set you apart, and this is what you bring me. What's the problem? They just don't know him, they just don't understand. And you know what, when I look at my own heart, I see often the same things. Uh, God's done so much for me and when I look inside my heart and I consider my motives and my priorities, what do I see? Often, I'm more passionate about other things. I'm not, as Laura prayed before, I'm not loving God with my whole heart. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I sometimes worship emptily in church. All these things. Why is it that often I'm reluctant to pray? I see all these things going on in my heart. And you know what? My worship can never be good enough, and neither can yours in itself. In and of yourself, you can never be good enough in your worship to God. And so one solution might, we might think of here as we read this, and as we hear this message is, right, I need to get my act together. I need to do better and try harder. Is that the message of the gospel? It's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is really different. We need a heart change. Now here's the serious problem. Have a look at verse 14. God's people are under a curse. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. They're under a curse. Now, what's the solution for us? You know, our worship can never be good enough. What does it say in Isaiah 64, verse 6? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. Our best efforts are like filthy rags before Him in and of themselves. I'll tell you what's required a better sacrifice, a better offering is required. A perfect sacrifice in our place is required. So here's the third heading God's prescription. Our solution is not to do better or try harder. God offers a solution. Now, maybe uh, you're not a believer in Christ. Maybe you don't know Christ. The solution is the same for you as it is for someone here who's been a Christian for years and years. And maybe you're still on fire for the Lord and you feel like you're worshipping wholeheartedly, but we need to hear these things again and again. Here's the three things. Repent, remember, remind. Okay, So here's where we're going with this. God's prescription. Repent, remember, remind. Repent. The first thing is, is good news. This is good news is that for a, whole, for a half-hearted worshipper, God offers grace. He offers grace. Have a look at verse 9. Now plead with God to be gracious with us. So there's good news there. God's not pleased with half-hearted worship. He's not pleased with defective worship, but he offers grace. Plead with him to forgive you and be gracious. God offers grace for the sinner. And this is one of the most important things we need to understand about the God that we believe in, the God that we love. He's God who loves to save sinners. He's a friend. Jesus is a friend of sinners. So he offers grace. Second thing is remember. Remember. There is a deep lie at the root of all cynicism. You can see it in verse 2 that we read before. In all kind of spiritual cynicism, in all kind of empty worship, in all kind of sin, there is a deep lie that God doesn't love us. I wonder if you ever have felt that, uh, that God doesn't love me. I've looked at my circumstances in life and they're disappointing and you conclude that God doesn't love me. That deep lie is the lie Israel believed. Um, It was the lie that Adam and Eve believed the first sin. It's the deep lie that we're in danger of believing. What are the signs and symptoms of it? Here are some. Lack of thankfulness. Some signs that we're thinking God doesn't love me. Lack of thankfulness. Or your view of God. One of the signs is that God seems like more of a rule keeper or a slave master or a tyrant to you than he does a loving father. Another sign might be that service has become a bit of a burden to you, serving God. Here we go again. God doesn't love me can be at the root of that. Another one is this dangerous word in the Christian life, and that's the word should. there There are times when should is appropriate, but I should read my Bible. There is a kind of should that's appropriate. I should because I need to. Not I should because I've got to get right with God. And he's not happy with me if I don't. So be careful of the word should and examine where that's coming from in your life. It's not always wrong, but maybe that can come from a view that God doesn't love you. You've got to get yourself right with him. What do we need? We need to remember the evidence. We need to remember who we are. We're God's chosen people, that he's called us. That, uh, what it says there in verses 2 to 6, that's true of us. God has loved us and chosen us. And I wonder if you've got an arsenal of Scripture memory to counteract the lie of Satan. Remember Jesus, when he was tempted, he used Scripture to deal with Satan. Now, when we're tempted to believe God doesn't love us, we've got to go back to God's promises, not our circumstances. Romans 5, 8, 9. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. What? How do we know God loves us? Jesus Christ died for us. Uh, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. God sent his one and only son to die for us. 1 John 4.10-11, this is love. Not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Scripture everywhere talks about how much God loves us in his son Christ. He's proven it. He's proven his love for you by sending his son Jesus Christ into the world to die for you. Just have a turn to um, page twelve eighteen and have a look at second Peter oh, sorry first Peter chapter two page one two one eight. We need to remember who we are and we will see here what this kind of elicits in our life one Peter chapter two verses nine to ten. This is who we are. This is who God's made us to be. We've got to remember who we are as God's loved people. And you see what kind of response this brings about in our lives. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God has done it all to rescue you. He's loved you. He's made you his special possession. He's laid down this immense price to purchase you. Now, I, we said before, didn't we, that um, the value of the gift conveys something about the value of the recipient. What has God's, what's God's statement about how much he values you? What's the the price he laid down for you? He laid down the value of his precious son, his beloved son, uh, to purchase you from sin and death. That's how much he loves you. So you're God's treasured possession of people belonging to him, purchased for him. So God offered the perfect sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God who takes away sin of the world. Um, God took the curse In his son, his son took the curse for us so that we wouldn't have to be cursed anymore. And we'll never be under the wrath of God. It says in 1 Thessalonians, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what response does that bring about in us? Worship. That we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And have a look at verse 5 of 1 Peter 2, and you actually see how our worship becomes acceptable now look at the second half of chapter five uh, sorry verse five and it says we are a holy priesthood a spiritual house offering spiritual sacrifices how are they acceptable to god acceptable to god through jesus christ so uh, actually our sacrifices now if you've come to relationship with christ your sacrifices are acceptable through jesus how does that work I wonder if you remember Jesus' baptism, uh, the story of Jesus' baptism. Matthew chapter 3, and Jesus goes into the water and he gets baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him and there's a voice from heaven. What does God's voice say of Jesus? It says, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Now, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, if you've come to put your faith in Jesus Christ, here's the good news is that You've been united with Jesus so that all that's Jesus belongs to you. And so when God looks at you, he sees his son. And he says, this is my beloved son or daughter. With this person I'm well pleased. With you I am well pleased. If you put your faith in Jesus then God delights in you as he delights in his son. That's the wonder of the gospel. Isn't that good news? That he delights in us as he delights in his son. So... We need to remember this. And you can see back in Malachi chapter 1, verse 5. You see what happens when we grasp God's love? Verse 5. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord. So we, we see God's love for us in Christ, and we want to worship. So God is pleased with you. So repent, remember, and remind. Okay, so remind. What are we talking about here? So we need to examine ourselves. We also need to remind one another. We're a body who are to encourage one another and ex- exhort one another toward uh, worshiping God. So, yes, we need to look for these symptoms in ourselves. But what about when we see them in one another? We need to point those out. We need to lovingly say, "Are you forgetting something about God's love for you?" Maybe if we see uh, self hatred in in one of our brothers or sisters, in one another, or we see complaining spirit or something like this we need to lovingly point out the truth of the gospel that we're loved god's pleased with you he loves you and we need to practice privileged mentality i think it's an exercise that every day we can practice being thankful what can you be thankful for if you stop and think about it the reality is we we deserve god's eternal judgment just like the nation of esau That's what we deserve. Anything beyond that is privilege for us. Anything beyond that. Uh, That leaves a whole infinite array of things we can be thankful for. But most of all, we've been adopted into God's family and forgiven. So practice privilege mentality every day. This is why it's an important exercise for us. um, To give thanks before food. Or to give thanks for all kinds of things. Giving thanks to God in all circumstances, as the New Testament says. Overflowing with thankfulness. So be a people that practice being thankful. Practice speaking about what we can be thankful for. Lastly, remind yourself of the t-shirt you wear. What do I mean by that? If God has put his name on us as his people and we belong to Jesus and he's passionate about being worshipped in the nations and he's passionate about us showing him off in the world, then a good question for us to ask is, what does my worship what does my life convey about how precious God is and to remember that we wear the stamp of God's people in the world that we display God to the world that's what we're on earth to do I wonder if uh, you've ever evaluated a school by the behavior of kids in uniform Um, sometimes you're on a bus and you'll see a bunch of kids from a certain school and maybe they're really polite and well behaved you think oh it's a great school maybe I'll send my kids there one day Or you think, wow, that school must be awful. You know, unkempt uniforms and uh, bad language or whatever. But we evaluate a school based on the behaviour of the kids. People in the world will evaluate God by how his people act and live. So what does your life show about how precious God is? So remember that you wear the t-shirt in your speech. uh, Tomorrow when you go to work, Uh, your speech, your priorities... Uh, your, your attitude, your thankfulness, the grace you show to others, all of those things convey something about the value of God. But be encouraged. God is making you, committed to making you a passionate worshiper. Let's just close again. We'll just close with uh, these, verse 11. I'll just read verse 11 again. Um, let's remind ourselves of God's passion for his glory. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this song that is sung in Revelation Uh, We just want to repeat that. Uh, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power. Um, For you were slain and with your blood you purchased people from every tribe and language and nation. Lord, you're worthy, uh, Father, and through your Son to be worshipped forever and delighted in forever. And we know that in eternity there will be people from every nation worshiping you and you're so passionate about your glory because you deserve it and we need it and so we pray that you'd make us into worshipers thank you that you've called us into your family that we would be your chosen people and a holy priesthood pray that the nations would see from our lives and our words that you're a great god who's called us out of darkness and into your wonderful light so lord we want to love you more pray that you'd give us the grace to grasp your boundless love for us in Christ more, that we might be genuine worshippers of you and that you might get the glory you deserve, that the Lamb may receive the reward of his sufferings and nations might know what a great God you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.